This is a wealthy country. If we spend things well, we can spend them. But I'm not prepared to say, you know what, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions for war that we never should have been in, but we don't save an important industry and protect workers from having gains that they fought hard for taken away. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Laura Conaway. It's Wednesday, November 19th. It's about 4.41 p.m. here in New York City. And Laura, you and I have not been in here no. together for a long time. No, it feels great. I haven't hosted a podcast in a while. I'm very glad to be back and I, back with you. I am so glad to be back. Today on this podcast, we are all about banks. We're going to talk about how the government is choosing the banks that get capital injections and the ones that don't. And we also have a little song about bankers. But that's later. Yes. First, we're going to do the Planet Money Indicators. We're going to go kind of traditional today. This was the day, I think, that I realized we are not in as good shape as I thought we were. Really? Now, don't get me wrong. Okay. I knew that we had a financial crisis going on, and I knew we were heading into a deep recession. Of course, I knew all of that. But I thought that the worst of the financial crisis was behind us. And I'd say today's the day where I really had to face the fact that that's just not True. It's bad out there. It's bad out there. Um, you know, we, we here at Planet Money do not like talking about the Dow Jones Industrial Average generally. We don't see it as a very helpful indicator. But a day like today where it fell below 8,000, mm. seeing that 7,997, mm. mm. it's really striking. And it is a sign of, we think, I mean, look, honestly, any given day, the stock market's movement is a sign of a bunch of people making a bunch of random decisions that really add up to no clear picture. But that's low. But that's low. And and um, it, it it is part of what is driving it low is people saying the banks are not done being fixed. They are not all set. The, the, the That underlying financial crisis is not over. Other evidence of that is the TED spread, which we talk about a lot here. What is the TED spread? The TED spread is the measure – we use it as a proxy for measuring global anxiety, how how the financial system is feeling, its fear level. And um, it, technically, by the way, it's the difference between how much it costs to lend money or how much you get for lending money to the U.S. Treasury Department for three months versus how much banks have to pay to borrow money for three months. It's a measure of fear. It, it's just, you know, it fell a lot from its high up in the 450, 460 basis point level down to 211 basis points, 2.11. Um, a big drop, but but it's just kind of stayed there since November. High. It's since the beginning of November. It's still way too high. And it's only that low, we think, because of a lot of things um, – the, the government has been doing. It's sort of an artificially low number. In fact, that's exactly what Tom Corona told me. He's, you know, our old friend yeah. and interbank money lending guy at Tradition Asia Securities. I think it'll be helpful. Uh, we're going to hear from him in a second. It'll be helpful for me just to remind you that LIBOR is the London interbank offered rate. Basically, it is the rate that banks have to pay to borrow money. It is half of the TED spread number. And, and that's what he's referring to when he says LIBOR. So let's go to Tom Corona of Tradition Asia. Hi, how are you? I'm good. So the the last time I talked to you, um, 
there was no money moving between banks. Things were frozen. You were sitting there. I don't know what you were doing, playing computer games or watching watching cartoons on the computer. Uh, how are things now? Is it completely back to normal? Uh, far from it. Uh, we had a, a brief respite, uh, you know, with all the money that was thrown with the uh, the various facilities that the Fed has put in place in the front end, and LIBOR has moved lower. But LIBOR has really moved lower as simply as a function of all the artificial money that's in the market uh, from these various facilities with CDs and commercial paper. Uh, but the real money is still not changing hands. Uh, the real lenders still have not returned. The real lenders being two-way seven funds and such. Uh, the money, money market funds. The money market funds. So, so are you... Are you making trades every day? Uh, not, not in the, uh, the, the traditional products that we did. Uh, you know, we do some uh, corporate stuff, and uh, I mean, we do the occasional short-term trade, uh, three-month funding. But the uh, the normal flows of billions in three-month maturities and six-month maturity, uh, true money market CD uh, deposit-type product. Uh, is, is all gone by the wayside. It's uh, just not happening. Banks post every day. It's, uh, it's similar to when you left here the last time. When you were up here, we have 50 banks paying for three-month deposits and uh, no lenders. So. so that's worse. The last time I was there, there were 45 banks who wanted to borrow money and no lenders. Now you're telling me there's 50 banks. It's actually in the last two days we've seen a, uh, a return to the markets being frozen. Uh, spreads have blown out tremendously. Uh, today, for example, a stock that has been a safe haven, Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, Warren Buffett's yeah, company. Uh, that was down, I believe, 15% on the day, the stock. And I, this, the credit default swaps blew out, I think, another 20%. So everything is under pressure. There's no safe haven at this point. Other, Other than, than Treasury bills. <laughs> wow. So it's grim. You got you got no good news for me here. I wish I had some good news for you, but it looks like going into year-end, uh, you know, and I, I have to say, I have to draw a, a line. There seems to be a, a direct correlation to every time the senators uh, start talking about bailing somebody out, the market takes it terribly, and we just go down. And, you know, the last three days, we've had the car companies up there begging for money and it's just one big show on TV, and the market just does not take it well. You know, I think the bailout economy is, is failing, and the markets are telling you that. And they need to re be repaired, but uh, what they're doing is obviously not working, and it just keeps getting worse. You know, I think because the news hasn't been as heavy, it's felt out here away from the front lines like things had calmed down and were getting better. And uh, i got to say, this is not a call that makes me reassured. This well, is... what we have going on in the, in the credit market seems to be being reignited, and I'm, I'm hoping it's more of a settling up for the year-end, the holiday season upon us, and that in January things will be better. So should the rest of us just just hunker down, get through Christmas, and, and, and start worrying again? Exactly. The Grinch is in in style for Christmas, that's for sure. <laughs> All right. Are your kids getting anything this year? Oh, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be fine. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Tom Corona of Tradition Asia Securities. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. I guess we'll find out if there's good news in a, in a couple months. We checked in on another piece of news today. The U.S. government has continued with its plan to buy shares in banks as a way of sort of propping up the ones that it believes is, are healthy enough to survive. And we wanted to get more of an update on that. 
And we called Charles Peabody. Um, he's, you know, New Yorkers say Peabody, but since my dad's from Massachusetts, I say Peabody, of Portalis Partners. Uh, he's a banking analyst. And, you know, he, he has some really strong things to say, Laura, as you know, since you were there when he said it. Um, he feels like the government is playing the role of God. It's choosing which banks get to live and which get to die. And he's not entirely convinced that they're doing it in the best way. There are two broad criteria that they're assessing. One is the fundamental strength of each institution, and I think they'll acknowledge that. Um, and then the other is a more political process, which they probably won't acknowledge. That fundamental decision is something we can probably have a good sense of. The regulators rank banks on something called the CAMEL system. The CAMEL is an acronym for, C stands for capital adequacy, the A for asset quality, M for management, E for earnings, and L for liquidity. And you Do they give like a 1 to 10 score? Or? A 1 to 5 score, 1 being best and 5 being worst. If you're CAMEL rated 1 or 2 and you applied for that TARP capital, you're probably going to get it automatically. If you're CAMEL rated 4 or 5, it's unlikely you will get the TARP capital. If you're three, you're on the bubble. And but So a one or two is a solid bank. There's very little fear that that will collapse. They have good assets. They have enough money to cover all their liabilities. They're in good shape. Absolutely. So from the Treasury's perspective, what we were told is that the, the Treasury Department has no intention to use this money that Congress has given it, taxpayer money, to save banks that should fail. Absolutely. What they're going to do is really good banks – that have run themselves well and done proper things but are facing a problem not for their own fault but because the whole system is in crisis, we're going to keep them going, improve their health through this crisis period. And is that what they've done? Have they only gone to the strongest, most stable banks and, and, and shored them up? No, quite, quite the opposite. When you look at some of the banks that got this TARP capital – you're astounded that they were approved. and Because they're crappy banks. Yeah, they should fail. Uh, some of these banks that got capital should fail. And, and that's and not a small and, thing. That is a huge thing. And, and, and they probably will fail despite the fact that they got the TARP capital. Wow. Taking our taxpayer dollars with them. Absolutely. What you can do if you sort of reverse engineer your analysis is you can go around and say, okay, this bank got capital, this bank got capital, this bank – and they shouldn't have. What's the common thread? And what you're finding out is that some of these banks are either the number one or number two largest independent bank in their respective states. And so if, if you take out the big national banks like Bank of America or J.P. Morgan Chase or Citigroup and you look at who is left in that state that's truly an independent local bank, they're all getting TARP capital. And I think there is a philosophical belief that we need – these local community banks to exist. So this might be the biggest bank in Utah or the biggest bank in Den in Colorado or exactly. whatever. But is there also a political force at work here in the sense that that bank in that state has a vested interest in the politicians representing it in Washington? Very much. I mean, many of these banks have very strong ties to um, politicians in their state, and and probably there's been some influence. Um, as to how they got their capital. There is a mandate in um, ESA, which is that 
Emergency Economic Stabilization Act that just gave Paulson and the Treasury powers to, to determine. The, the, the mandate says that the capital has to be deployed in a, in a diverse way. That means geographically diverse, so you can't give all the money to the Northeast and none to the West. It has to be employed in a size diversity. In other words, you can't give all the capital to the largest nine banks. You have to make sure some of the community banks. And then there is also a minority ownership um, requirement. And so you'll see a bank in California called Saigon National Bank that got TARP capital. Which uh, serves like the Vietnamese community, I assume, or? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and and so there, there are these decisions that are being made based on the mandate that was demanded of Treasury. But there are decisions clearly being made that have political ties. So would your argument be that, that these restrictions or mandates are distorting the process? Well, you know, that's a philosophical question. Um, you know, there's been inherent in the American culture this distrust of concentration of power and concentration of wealth. And we have 8,500 banks out there. Do you want just the nine largest to survive? I don't think so, given our heritage. Um, so I think what you're going to see develop is sort of a barbell um, banking system where you have a dozen large banks that control 80% of the deposits survive, and they'll be national in scope. And you'll have four or 5,000 community banks that are important to their state or their local community that will survive. But it'll be down significantly from the 8,500 that we have now. So should I be angry? I mean – you know, the, the whole reason we were sold this idea that we have to give $700 billion to the banking system was that we – our way of life was at risk of collapsing and that nobody was going to make money off of this. This wasn't some giveaway. We were going to save our system and our lives. And what I'm hearing you say is that it seems like there's a decent chance that – at least some of that money is being used to help the political cronies of politically important senators and congressmen. In other words, we're going to be in debt as taxpayers, a debt we're going to have to pay off. And the, there are beneficiaries. It's the people who've contributed money to the campaigns of politicians and it's the politicians who will get more money for more campaigns. I mean that – I feel angry if that's true. Is that what I can say with absolute assurity is that some of these banks that have gotten TARP capital will fail, and I question why they got it. And there's no question that some of these banks were probably significant in their local politics. Now, we are certainly not saying that all of that $700 billion is getting used in some corrupt, politically expedient way. Uh, only $290 billion has been spent at all, and $40 billion of that went to AIG, and $125 billion went to the top nine banks, which probably were not you know, a political decision. So you know, we don't know how much we're talking about um, that, that's being used in this politically expeditious way. But what we will tell you is that we're going to keep digging into it. Yeah, I think we really got to get more on that and we're going to bring in some people to um to work with us on it too. Yeah, we're going to we're going to really focus on that. We want our listeners to hold us accountable for that promise.
No, don't, don't, don't. <laughs> All right, Laura, I see you got a big smile on your face. Yeah, I do. It's because I'm about to share something that we've been holding on to for a little while. It's a song. It comes to us from a listener named Ryan Stotland. Yes, it is a song, and you will think that even after you hear it. Ryan Stotland is 22. He just got a degree in economics, and he's working as a researcher in the bonds market up in Montreal. Excellent. A song about bonds and research and what? No, no, no. Ryan sent us this song. It's called A Central Banker's Dilemma, and he says the idea for it just kind of hit him. One day it just came into my head. I was actually walking back from work, and for some reason the the, the word stagflation was just floating around in my head. Because why not? <laughs> why not? Well, yeah, so I guess it was in July when uh, that was sort of the main concern is I guess oil is still really high, about $140. And like the last lyric of my song, I, I mentioned that inflation was 5.6%. So inflation was high, and obviously growth was a pretty big concern. So stagflation was what people were worried about. And If I ask you, Ryan, to define stagflation, what would you say? Yeah, so stagflation, I would say, is the combination of uh, stagnating growth and high inflation. Okay. Yeah. So that means that I'm a consumer and my wages aren't going anywhere, but prices are going up and up? Exactly. Yeah. So prices are going up, but as a whole, the, the economy is shrinking. And it's a particularly distressing situation because the central bank's hands are sort of tied in the sense that if they lower rates, they could try to stimulate growth, but they're going to cause more inflation. And if they raise rates, then they're going to cool off growth, but they'll but they might they might help the inflation problem. So either way they're going to help one problem and make the other one worse. And that's the central banker's dilemma. That that's the dilemma. So now you're going to play me the song? Yeah, I am. It's um it's a little bit of a collaboration. Ryan sent the lyrics to a college friend, Kyle Thompson Westra. Together they call themselves the AstroTurf. I'm thinking we should just go just go out on their song today. In which case, before we get there, because uh, I don't know how many people will be there when we end, I'm Adam Davidson. Keep in touch with us on our blog, npr.org slash money. And I'm Laura Conaway, and this is the AstroTurf's Central Bankers Dilemma. Mm-hmm.